0: Hello and welcome back to Skeptics and Seekers. I'm Dale, representing the Christian or Seeker side. And I'm David, the Skeptic. Excellent. And uh, yeah, this week I'm really excited. We have a special guest uh, being kind enough to, to join us on the show to speak about a few topics. Uh, we have Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome to the show, Michael. Great
1: to be with you guys. Thank you
0: very excited Uh, michael michael brown's research has been um very important for me in my my own faith journey and it played a role in my conversion about a year and a uh, year and a half ago so um yeah i think this will be a great show um basically we have planned three main themes or topics so we're gonna first look at um answering jewish objections to jesus um then we're gonna get into the issue of Uh, And then finally, we're going to end off with uh, the cessationism versus continuationism uh, debate there. So, uh, yeah, just before we actually get started, I just want to turn it over to the guest. Um, Michael, do you you want to give sort of an intro as to who you are and maybe your faith journey a bit? And
2: when you do that, uh, go ahead and mention any books or projects uh, that you'd like people to know about as well. And uh, we'll be sure to include links in, uh, in the blog.
1: Sure thing. Yeah, folks can get a lot of information on what we're doing at askdrbrown.org, askdrbrown.org. I was born in New York City 1955. My dad became the senior lawyer in the New York Supreme Court. Then we moved to Long Island when I was about seven. So I was raised in a conservative Jewish home, which meant we were religious enough to go to temple on the high holidays. I was bar mitzvahed at 13, but we weren't religious Jews. And my bar mitzvah was more or less a, a social event for me. The big impacting event for me at 13 was seeing Jimi Hendrix in concert. And I was, I, I was playing drums already. I wanted to be in a rock band. So that whole culture, the, the rebellion of the 60s, I just dove into that. I started getting high at 14, was shooting heroin at 15, became known as drug bear and Iron Man because I was just a, such a crazy drug user. And when I was 16, my two best friends started going to a gospel preaching church And as I saw their lives starting to change, I went to pull them out and uh, instead God began to work in my life when I wasn't looking for him and certainly didn't believe in Jesus. And my life was radically, dramatically transformed. And my dad said, Michael, it's wonderful to see the change in your life, but we're Jews. We don't believe this. So he introduced me to the local rabbi who in turn began to talk to me and bring me to meet other rabbis. So very early on, I was challenged, you know, you don't even know Hebrew, how can you tell us what to believe, and things like that, and really had to wrestle with with the truth of Scripture. I knew that Jesus had dramatically changed my life, but I knew that these rabbis were raising serious objections. When I started college, uh, I went to a secular university and did all my studies in secular universities, but I started to get more and more interested in the, the languages of the Bible, especially Hebrew and ended up getting a a PhD from New York University in Near Eastern Languages and Literatures. But the initial reason for getting into this was I, I wanted to be able to study the text on my own. I wanted to be able to have answers for the rabbis without having to rely on someone else's opinion. And I studied with all professors my entire educational time who didn't agree with me. Some were very hostile, some were friendly, but none of them agreed with me. Many of them were very skeptical about scripture. So I was constantly challenged, and I, and I said to myself, if what I believe is true, I'm sure it is, but if it is, then it can withstand any test. In other words, I don't have to I don't have to run from controversy. I don't have to stick my head in the sand. So uh, that was my educational experience, and then over the years, began to debate rabbis and then write relevant books. So I have a five-volume series called Answering Jewish Objections to Jesus, which comprehensively goes through the major objections and presents uh, answers to them. And then a number of other uh, related books. Uh, one of the newest is Our Hands Are Stained with Blood, which tells the story of anti-Semitism in church history. We just put out a brand new edition of that. I have a commentary on the Book of Job that will be out in a few weeks. So I've written lots of different books on different subjects, but probably about eight or nine of them relate specifically to Jewish issues and and quite a few relate to answering Jewish objections to Jesus. So that's that's part of what I've done to this day. And then lots of other ministry, where we have a great heart for the nations as well. So we've had a ministry school and sent grads out uh, serving around the world. And, and I've been in, outside the United States about 200 times uh, preaching and ministering. So been a busy and wonderful, uh, 48 years now following Jesus. Excellent,
0: excellent. Yeah, and I, I gotta just back up. Uh, five-volume set. I, I actually own it, and it is a fantastic series. It, it really goes into a lot of depth um, in terms of answering those Jewish objections. And coincidentally, that's that's actually our first topic um, for today: is looking at, at some of the main main objections that Jews might bring on a theological level. Um, so, so yeah, I just want to turn it over to to you there, Michael, to give sort of a brief introduction. Um, you know, in terms of Jesus, uh, the Trinity, and how that, uh, you know, corresponds with Old Testament scripture, um, how Jesus relates to the sacrificial system, um, as well as, uh, you know, how does Jesus relate to the Old Testament law in general? Did he abolish the Old Testament law? So before, before
2: Michael, uh, you get in, I also just want to throw in the one question that I have here so that you can work that into your answer, uh, and then I won't have to come back and um, put in on it. So uh, the, the question that I have uh, would be if, in fact, uh, you are reading uh, the Jewish scriptures correctly, and uh, if Jesus is... Uh, what the Christian scriptures suggest he is, and if the things that happened, that actually happened that the scriptures say, why did the Jews put him on a cross instead of a throne? Um, Why why wasn't he exactly what they were looking for?
1: Yeah, so uh, that's a great question. I really appreciate it. And I will weave that into my answer very quickly. Uh, The long and short of it is that, When a Jewish person today or for many centuries now looks at Jesus, they'll often look at him as someone foreign, as someone who who did not meet the expectations. If he's really the Messiah, why isn't there peace on earth? Why didn't he come as as a ruling king? And there would be a perception that uh, the beliefs about him are not in harmony with Jewish faith. In other words, a a trinity versus uh, a, a simple unity. And the question would be, why would he die on a cross? And the answer to all these questions is, is that's exactly what Scripture says would happen. What's fascinating is, is that we often try to put God in our own, the, the box of our own little understanding of the way things should go. And that's rarely the way things do go. When you, when you read our history in, in, the, in the Bible, the Jewish history, you see that we're often in rebellion that we suffer exile, that the temple gets destroyed because of our sin. That's the persistent theme that that God keeps delivering us and we keep rebelling. And what's interesting is that when we open up the messianic prophecies, which God did not lay out saying what follows is a messianic prophecy. And it will happen on this date at this time. No, what happened if that's the case, uh, people try to manufacture things or try to make prophecy, uh, work out their own way. but, when we open up the prophecies, we see that this one that would come to his people would be rejected by his own people, and that by, by being rejected by his people would be the way that the rest of the world is saved. That in order for the Messiah to be the Messiah, according to what's written in the Hebrew Bible hundreds of years before he comes, is that he has to suffer and die and rise from the dead before the second temple is destroyed, that he'll be rejected by his own nation, but will become a light. To the nations of the earth this is the kind of thing that you can't manufacture and that, that you can't just make happen and when when you go back then and, and begin to look at the scriptures what you see is wow well, it's, it's all laid out here i don't know if you've ever uh looked at a picture and and someone says what do you see so i i see a picture of an old man well keep looking at it well i see a picture of an old man keep looking it's like i see a picture of a beautiful woman It's drawn in such a way that if you see it from a different angle, then suddenly you see it that way. And then afterwards, you can't unsee it. That's how it is with messianic prophecy, that if you were reading it in advance, you would not fully understand that all of these were messianic prophecies. After they came to pass, you look back, it's like, there it is. How could anyone deny it? It's so utterly clear. And as for the nature of God, what we see in scripture is God is is visible and yet invisible. that that he is transcendent and yet imminent, that he's revealed and yet he's unseen. And you say, how can this be? Because he's complex in his unity. This one God simultaneously can sit enthroned in heaven, can work among us by his spirit, and can appear in visible form. So he's unseen. No one can see him and live, the Old Testament says, and yet people do see him and live. And what the New Testament says is that it's the Son, Jesus, who makes him known. So rightly understood, God's complex unity is in full harmony with Jewish teaching about the nature of God. And, and as for his death on the cross, this is, this is the concept, that all of us are guilty, we've all fallen short, even on our best day, we fall short of God's perfection, because of which he has to, he has to judge sin. What would we think of an earthly judge who let every crime go because people were just having a bad day? There has to be justice in God's universe, but if God brought about perfect justice, He would fry the whole planet. So, in His love and mercy, He sends His Son, a perfectly righteous one. You could look at it like we all owe ten million dollars in debt, uh, but He has a hundred trillion billion dollars on His card. He says, "Hey, I'll I'll pay for it. I'll take what they deserve." And in doing so becomes the perfect and ultimate sacrifice that he says, I'll pay for the sins of the rest of the world. And that's what the Messiah does. And through, through the Jewish people rejecting him, the message then goes to the Gentiles. And then as we understand scripture, at the end of the age, there'll be a turning of the Jewish people. So it's all on schedule. It's all as prophesied. And that's why thousands and thousands of Jewish people continue to come to faith in Jesus, because they see it's written there in the Bible.
2: What, what would constitute a turning of the Jewish people to you? 10,000? Uh, a million? All of them? 80%? What's, how, how would we gauge that prophecy fulfilled?
1: Yeah, well, it won't be debatable. In, in other words, it won't be, well, Mike Brown had an opinion, and if I understand Scripture rightly, when God says in Jeremiah 31.1, at that time, God will be the God of all the families of Israel, or what Paul wrote, writes in Romans 11:26, all Israel will be saved, that there'll be a national turning. That uh, somehow at the end of this age and in conjunction with the Messiah's return, that the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, will put their trust in him. So does that mean every last one? Not necessarily, does it mean the nation as a whole? Yes. So uh, to me, the number is over 80% because you wouldn't use the word all otherwise. So it's, it's there'll be a national turning. Just as through much of Jewish history, you could say Jews don't believe in Jesus, on that day you'll say Jews do believe in Jesus.
2: Okay, well, yeah. I, I guess we'll just wait for that to happen. Uh, so, well, I mean, in, in the meantime, though, th- that's
1: prophecy, that's the future. But what matters right now is for any individual to, to come to a determination themselves. In other words, something promised tomorrow does not do anybody any good today uh, except to encourage them you know and build their faith so if if there's a famine today and i'm telling you i know rain is coming well that's that's great but right now we have a famine so the question is for any jewish person that that listens to this what do you make of this what do you make of the scriptures what about your own relationship with god Or, or any person jew or gentile if there is a god and if if we are guilty in his sight do we pay for our own sins could it be that he loved us enough to send his son so that's the thing, you know, let, let's examine it as best as we can now while we have breath. And, and then, yes, we shall see what the future holds. There's the Jewish joke that when the Messiah comes, the first question they're going to ask him, is this your first time here or were you here before?
2: <laughs> so, so um, before I let that go, so I, I j- just had a, a very interesting talk with um, Professor uh, Randall Rouser. And uh, we were talking about. Uh, the interpretation of Genesis uh, 1, the creation story, young earth, um, and the theological implications uh, of that. I uh, made a case that the, the- theological implications are untenable if it's a young earth or if it's an old earth for that matter. And so it was an interesting discussion. But I, the reason that comes to mind is because of uh, something you just said uh, about how people read the... The scripture and uh, you know the conclusions that they come to, and I, just in my own experience, people read the scripture in very different ways. Doctor Rouser, for instance, uh, thinks it is very obvious that um, uh, Genesis uh, one through three shouldn't be taken literally, and that it's it's uh, not a young Earth, and that uh, the Adam and Eve uh, garden of Eden is, is is figurative. Uh, how how do you read that? Uh, I mean, just just to shortcut it, you don't have to answer all of that. but I mean, would you say, for instance, the the Bible is pr- proposing a young earth or an old earth, Just something as simple as that might uh, make a huge difference in a person's theology?
1: Uh, yes, it, it might. I, I just put out a video the other day where I said, based on on my reading of the scriptures, because Genesis one is not the only account, of creation in the Bible, some are in more poetic form, but what I'm dogmatic about is number one, that there is only one God, number two, that he created the universe, that it's not, that nothing created everything. And number three, that Darwinian evolution cannot be true because the accounts are quite clear on A, that what God makes reproduces after its own kind so that you don't have macroevolution, you don't have microevolution, so evolution within species for sure, but not macroevolution, uh, and, and B, that the human race stands distinct from the rest of the creation being created in God's image. As for the dating of the earth, uh, I believe you could easily read scriptures either way, that you could read the scripture. The, the, the primary reason, let me just emphasize this, the primary reason that you have a creation account in the Bible is not to teach us science, but to teach us about the God that creates. The, the reason that you have cosmologies in the ancient world is to teach about the particular deity that the people worshiped. And when you look at Genesis one, this is the big thing to me. Again, my doctorate being in near Eastern languages and literatures. When you look at Genesis one, it stands, stands so transcendent above all the ancient creation literature uh, the so-called Babylonian Genesis or Egyptian creation accounts, or others, it's it. You wonder where where did they get this from? And and the uniqueness of this God and how he brings light out of darkness and order out of chaos and it's utterly monotheistic and he he speaks by creating. It's it's shocking and overwhelming. Uh, there are brilliant scientists who read this and who say it's in absolute harmony with science when read rightly. Others say we have to argue young Earth. Others old Earth. I'm not dogmatic about any of that, only because as I've, uh, number one, I don't have a lot of scientific acumen in, in, with the ability to take on scientists that hold to one theory or another. But uh, what I do see is I read different passages and I, and I understand the purpose of these passages. It could go either way to me, Young Earth, old Earth. I have no problem taking stands on controversial issues. I, I do so every day. I just don't see this as one to take a stand on. However, I would disagree with Professor Rouser on Genesis 3. It's not that you have to have a, a literal snake. It, it, could there be some parts of the account that are metaphorical? Someone could argue that, but what is clear is that there is a literal Adam and Eve. In other words, that, that there is a unique couple that are the, the progenitors of the human race, and that, that that couple literally sinned and that they are recognized as historic throughout Scripture. So that that to me is an important point. If you allegorize that, then you can end up allegorizing other parts of the Bible very easily. So just
2: to yes. be just to be just to be sure, uh, I know that Dale wants to step in, and our, our time is so brief. Uh, you would say that that death and destruction, death and disease, uh, was not prior to Adam and Eve, but that they brought it in as as more or less as the story reads.
1: Well, certainly on the human race is it is in other words some have argued that the setting in the garden of eden was unique and hence getting expelled from the garden of eden expelled them into a world that was already a, kind of a wilderness that that can be debated but certainly for the human race uh, death enters because of sin and and sin is is perpetrated by the founders of the human race uh, that seems evident to me and, and again I'm I'm holding to positions, and if someone says, well, we can challenge this scientifically or based on your dating of the earth, bring on the challenges. That's fine. I'm just trying to be honest and tell you as I understand scripture as opposed to here's a convenient way to understand scripture that also interfaces with the latest scientific theory. I I just want to throw out one other thing for consideration. Um, There are things that science is very confident of today that, you know, generation ago, maybe the opposite was believed and that was considered to be certain. And it could be 20 or 30 years from now that things that we hold certain today with more scientific information, that'll be rejected. But let's just say that the Bible dogmatically taught that the earth went around the sun. That would mean from the beginning of history up until the late Middle Ages that everyone would have thought the Bible was scientifically inaccurate because it differed with the science of the day. So we have to understand that what God's communicating is meant to be something that is timeless and transcendent and can work across culture. And if God's intent was to communicate scientific fact, then most generations through, through history would have dismissed the Bible as being inaccurate and irrelevant because it had the facts wrong, whereas as, it was science. As I do today. Right, had things wrong.
2: <laughs> For, right, right. right, okay.
1: right but, but, I mean, I'd encourage you, though, I don't know how much you've read of, of the top scientists in the the young Earth camp or the old Earth camp, or folks like Gerald Schroeder, you know, physicists who, who say, uh, you know, Jewish physicists that what Genesis one says is absolutely accurate, you know, brilliant, brilliant folks that know a hundred times, thousand times more science than I do. So I defer to them on those issues.
2: Okay, and, and what I know, I know. Last question. Since you are a Hebrew expert, though, uh, I I take your. Judgment on this last question, and you can be as brief as as one or two words if you want to. The uh, young Earth, old Earth view. How did the Jews read that? Um, because it's a Jewish text written to Jewish people uh, a long time ago. So, in in your best estimation, how would they have read it?
1: Well, the the first thing is we don't have a lot of discussion about the issues, you would have assumed, you know, six days is six days. You know what I'm saying? You would have just assumed that. But you do have the – you don't have systematic interpretation of the of the Hebrew Bible uh, until you get to the 11th century with a, a Jewish scholar named Rashi, uh, the acronym for, for Rabbi Sh- uh, Shlomo Yitzhaki. And, and uh, so he lives 1040 to 1105. And he has the first complete commentary on the Bible and the Talmud as well. And, and then you have the flourishing for a few hundred years, the flourishing of the medieval commentaries. And A, they either don't talk about the, the dating of the earth, because they're, they're just not thinking about it when they're reading the text, or B, they have more of a flexibility in terms of how it could be read. That's why the uh, young earth, old earth debate is one found more among Christian scholars than Jewish scholars. Uh, I'm not talking about liberal Jewish scholars that, that would not feel the need to take it literally and or defend it against scientific objections, but I'm talking about traditional Jewish scholars. Uh, it's not a big debate for them because they they would find more flexibility in reading it. Even their reading of the opening two verses is sometimes different than a Christian reading. Uh, it's verse one is is read as a clause that, that leads into the second verse. When God began to create the heavens and the earth and the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep, etc. Then God said, let there be light as opposed to in the beginning, God created. But you you have lots of different possibilities. You also have ancient Jewish interpretation, reading the opening verses in the beginning, uh, as, as we have in most of our Christian translations. But Jewish scholars, the main Bible commentaries in the Middle Ages. Uh, do not make dogmatic statements, they only about the, the age of the Earth. Uh, and the genealogies would be a bigger point, or the genealogies consecutive, in which case the Earth is less than 10,000 years old. And in Jewish tradition, we just entered year 5780, which would, would be a young Earth idea. But again, it's not something that's really debated. Uh, and By the way, when I, I know you keep saying time is short, when I do interviews they're only 10 or 15 minutes so an hour is long for me I know it's short for you guys but
2: <laughs> well it's just anyway, it's just, don't, don't it's just, just that our, time. our audience yeah. is expecting us to ask certain questions and I know they're well, going no, think... to no, 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 ask away if you know yeah. if
1: you get cut off at a certain point right but don't, don't cut yourself short if it's important to you okay
2: okay thanks thanks well, for that yeah,
0: well, I did want to just ask you on this this section uh something so something we brought up about death um and obviously it's an essential belief about the atonement that sort of thing but jews um will reject this they'll say there's not necessary there's no blood isn't necessary there are other means of atonement um so yeah i was just wondering if you why why is blood necessary why why does jesus have to sacrifice himself uh to atone for our sins
1: right so number one god can do whatever he wants to do in in other words he's it's up to him. He makes the rules. He calls the shots in that respect, and he'll do it in a way that's perfectly just and consistent in, in harmony with his, with his nature. Mm-hmm. But it's not like there had to be a certain way or he couldn't do things. Rather, this was the just and the right way. So it, it's very simple. If we simply say, well, if people are sorry, then God could, should just forgive them. Okay, but are there consequences to sin? We know in our earthly society that it can't function like that, that there are jail sentences. There are certain things for which life in prison without parole is a just sentence. Some would argue there's certain things for which a death penalty is a just sentence, but there has to be a penalty for, for crimes committed. And, uh, and again, God knows things every second of every day that that human beings are doing for which, uh, there is no penalty. No, one's catching them or finding out about it. So, ultimately the penalty for sin is it separates us from god so that's spiritual death and then for certain things there is a death penalty and ultimately our sins are rebellion against god or doing our own thing or or feeding the flesh or or greed or 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 violence or lust or, or or transgressions those deserve death and rather than punishing us god made a way, which is a preposterous way, that it's preposterous in that it's a love beyond what any of us would ever imagine. He made a way for us to be forgiven. So the blood is is simply that is the symbol of life. In Leviticus seventeen, eleven, God says he, he gave us blood atonement on the altar because the life is in the blood. So when the blood is shed, I mean you see here's someone shot and they bleed out. When the blood is shed that life leaves. So the the blood pays for sin, and the reason that blood is so important is because it satisfies that death penalty. The Jewish idea that blood is not essential is not based on Scripture. It's based on developing Jewish tradition, especially once the second temple was destroyed and there were no more blood sacrifices. So the Day of Atonement, which is coming up within just a few days of when we're recording this, this show, the Day of Atonement, traditional Jews will spend 24 hours fasting and much of that time in the synagogue confessing sins individually confessing sins sins corporately and asking God for mercy and forgiveness but as instituted in scripture blood sacrifice was essential and another animal was essential that, that they would confess the sins of the nation on that animal and send it out into the wilderness so it symbolically carry those sins away so it's it's Jewish tradition that says the blood is not essential because there hasn't been a standing temple and also as a reaction against Christian teaching of the foundational nature of the blood. But I just challenge any any Jewish listener, go through the five books of Moses and underline every time it emphasizes the importance of repentance, uh, confession of sin and repentance, and then underline every time it mentions blood in the context of atonement. And you'll see overwhelmingly 40, 50, 60 to one, it puts the emphasis on blood atonement and then the rest of Scripture emphasizes with that the importance of repentance, of us turning to God and asking for mercy. The principle is substitution. And there's a Jewish tradition uh, that states that the death of the righteous atones for the sins of the generation. And it seems to be a Jewish way of trying to work out why it might be that this man who seemed to be the godliest man in his community suddenly dies at the age of 40, or why a little child that hasn't committed uh Sins with with knowledge and understanding, that child dies. And the rabbinic concept was that, that the generation deserved judgment, but instead God took the life of someone that was innocent and was so righteous that their righteousness could basically pay for the sins of that generation if they would repent. And whether that's a true concept or not is another story, but it does explain to a Jewish person what we're saying about Jesus, that he, the perfectly righteous one, dies for the sins of the whole world. And, and I just want to throw this out because of the, the skeptics and seekers that are listening. When people say, well, well, why would God do this? And why would God create a world where there's so much suffering and pain? Just remember, he created the world in which he knew there'd be so much suffering and pain, but he would enter into that world and take the suffering on himself as a sign of his love. So whatever you accuse him of, you can't accuse him of indifference.
2: Well, right, but I, I'm not sure how that helps. <laughs> so, he he designed a world with suffering and pain, but he was going to enter it and then somehow redeem it. Doesn't really help all the people who suffered, and um, then they'll ultimately maybe suffer a second death too. Just that that doesn't. As as a skeptic, uh, maybe speaking for other skeptics who don't have a voice today, that that story doesn't help.
0: Okay. And, and uh, Michael, I'll let, I'll let you get the last word to answer that. But uh, in about three minutes, we'll move on to the next section. So I know yes. you've got to go.
1: Yeah. yeah. Uh, listen, and I, I can't tell a skeptic that this is meaningful to you any more than I can tell an audience. If I was a comedian, that my joke is funny, obviously everybody's going to have to work that out for themselves. But, but I say it's profoundly relevant. Number one, The idea that God is cruel or indifferent does not harmonize with the cross. Number two, God's saying, I understand firsthand the pain of this world. And the only reason there's pain in this world is because God created beings with free will. If you'd like God to take away your free will, then, you know, let's press a button, let's lobotomize everybody, take away free will and just smile and be happy. We don't want that.
2: There'll be free will in heaven, right?
1: Yeah, but we've already made a choice. In other words, we've already made a choice in this world, and now we get to live that out. We've said, God, I want to please you. I want to honor you. I want to do what's right. I don't want to do these things. And He's going to honor that forever. But uh, to, to finish the point, mm-hmm. if we're going to have a world in which, number one, we exist, which most of us want to do, that's why we're not taking our lives. Number two, where we have freedom of choice, well, there are going to be consequences and there's going to be pain, and, and, and love is not coerced. God's not forcing us to love Him, but He enters into our world and suffers on our behalf. And if we cry out to him, we will find relief. We'll find profound relief in suffering. And, and I could introduce you to more people than 10,000 shows, a million shows, 10 million shows would, would have time to recount the extraordinary testimonies of God's love, meeting people in the midst of profound suffering. And through that, they became better people, more compassionate people, kinder people, people that are doing amazing good around the world. And and the suffering ended up being turned for good, just as the cross takes the worst the human race does and turns it around for good.
0: Excellent, excellent. All right, Um, yeah. So our our second topic um, is going to be on biblical sexuality, and and this is um, a topic I included for a lot of the skeptics in the audience because you know I've I've heard a lot of things, um, and I think Michael Brown gets sort of a bad rap uh, for his positions on this, and. The re- one of the reasons I wanted to bring on Dr. Brown is because I I think he's a great example of how to show You know disagree with someone and, and be loving towards them. He, he does a heck of a lot of a, a better job than I do for example so You know this was sort of my one of my motivations to, to talk about this hard subject. You know what why is it? Wrong to have sex outside of marriage. Why, why is homosexuality a sin? Um, and what does what does the Bible say it is a sin or not um, so, yeah, I just wanted to turn it over to you, Mike, to, so, to sort of
2: be- before you before you go there, I, I just want to say this is not just a subject for skeptics. <laughs> this is a this is a subject for Christians, too. I mean, some of the hottest debates over these topics are uh, on the Christian side. Uh, over 50 percent of Christians these days believe that homosexuality is OK. So once again, this is not a this is not a skeptics issue. This is a human issue.
0: Okay, fair enough. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to turn it over to you, uh, to you, Mike, to give sort of an opening statement as to, you know, what does the Bible say about this, and, and why is following biblical sexuality important in this statement? Sure.
1: Yeah, well, the, the Bible's really completely unambiguous about this, which is why there's been no major debate, disagreement, uh, until in the aftermath of the sexual revolution. And when you mention 50% of Christians, you know, Probe those Christians on, on 20 other beliefs, and you'll, you'll find that most of them do not hold to, to orthodox beliefs and these other issues. In other words, they're Christians in, in name only, or they're Christians in a very different way than Christians in previous generations. But the Bible's completely unambiguous uh, about these subjects. He designed men for women and women for men. There's not a single positive statement anywhere in the Bible uh, about uh, homosexual practice Every statement is decidedly negative, and the culture of the day was certainly quite familiar with homosexuality as, as we are uh, today, in, including long term same sex relations. These things were known in, 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 in different phases of, of biblical life and culture of the surrounding world and universally condemned in scripture. And here's what we have to understand the human race is created in God's image and yet fallen and flawed. So, every one of us has an issue. That or issues that are contrary to God's ideal. And here, I'm, I'm a heterosexual married man, been married 43 years, but I still have to watch my eyes. I'm a heterosexual man. I can be attracted to, to females. I have to watch my eyes, watch my thought life. Just because I have a certain desire doesn't mean that the desire is, is right. And, and there are people with all kinds of attractions and, and all kinds of disorders, and, and we simply have to say, okay, by biological design, it's evident men are made for women, women for men, as opposed to men for men or women for women. That's, that's a self-evident thing. It's self-evident that, that every human being that's ever come into this world has had a biological mother or father. Uh, and, and this is all for our best. Now, I have no question that there are people who can be fine people and, and in very serious relationships that are same-sex attracted. And, and that all their lives, as long as they can remember this is how they felt – and to them, this is as natural as me being heterosexual. I, I understand that. I'm, I'm not saying you know, you, you're the most evil person on the world because you're same-sex attracted. I'm simply saying it's clearly contrary to God's design. Uh, every, every reference to anything having to do with, with marriage and family in scripture presupposes a mother and a father uh, always w- without distinction. So it, it doesn't fit when you try to read it for same-sex couples. Uh, in any way i also know plenty of people that are former homosexuals they are some of the most persecuted discriminated discriminated against people on the planet and people say you don't exist and you're living in denial and and here are people that paid the price first of coming out as gay and then met the lord had their lives changed left the gay community and now are marginalized and hated and despised so they kind of got hit with a double whammy there but i would just say this and then we we can interact and i by the way I, I love the 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 pushback uh from from our skeptic friend here i i so appreciate it it's so rare i get people to call in my show that push back so i i welcome this but just just this this one other comment um woody allen was was on with billy graham decades ago it's an amazing piece of tv it's probably on youtube and and woody allen says you know look you don't buy a car without test driving it so you know we got to like try things out before we get married well you know what if your daughter was the one that somebody wanted to test drive you know how would you feel about that does it does it cheapen sex when you can have it with anyone that you know maybe a one-night stand or just someone you kind of like and you're attracted to so i'm talking about heterosexual sex whatever uh does it cheapen the meaning of sex what if it's something so sacred that it's just to be given to the person that that you marry. Uh, Not only that, someone tell me the answer to this. If, If you are sexually pure, you grow up sexually pure, you're married, you're faithful to your spouse, you can have sex on a regular basis, have a healthy sexual relationship, but you'll never get a sexually transmitted disease. You do that same thing with someone you're not married to and you might get a sexually transmitted disease. Where did it come from? Why? And why is it that, what, 50 times more, percentage-wise, men who have sex with men get sexually transmitted diseases as opposed to heterosexuals? There's something when we violate God's design. And what's really interesting is that surveys, many surveys have been done. I, I documented in my book, Saving a Sick America. But many surveys have been done in terms of contentment, satisfaction sexually, and overwhelmingly, it's the couples that are monogamous, and, and and that have been committed to each other in marriage that are much more satisfied sexually than than the singles who are having sex with whoever they want to. There's something about God's intent and design, the sacredness of this, that that's why he, he calls us to it. So it's not that he's being mean-spirited or nasty and, and saying, you, know, you can't you can't be with this person or that person. Rather, it's in our best interest that he set these things up.
0: Okay. Yeah. David, did you have any, anything to say about that? Or? Yeah, I think
2: as far as the last part, you know, our, our sexual best interest and in sexual pleasure and happiness, I'm not going to take uh, advice uh, about what makes me sexually happy from you know someone else. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, you don't actually have any access to what would make me uh, sexually happier. Uh, you, you have access to your opinion on that. I'm not sure why I should care. I would agree that uh, the Bible, uh, I, I think that you have categorized the Bible correctly. But this, this merely uh, says to the, uh, to, to the people on my side of the fence anyway, uh, that's all the more reason why I just could care less about your Bible and your God and your Bronze Age uh, mores. Uh, They they simply do not match the reality uh, of me. So uh, you would read the Bible and see something sacred and eternal and wise there, and I just see uh, the equivalent of a a bunch of Bronze Age age, uh, white Trump supporters uh, trying to control people's sexuality. Why should I care what they thought?
1: Well, first, it's a bizarre statement. You know, when the Bible is is a Middle Eastern book, with with the Israelites being people who were probably you know in in between white skin and black skin you know probably brown skin Middle Eastern people uh, that would have no concept of of you know Western politics you know so to me that's that's quite a big it, it it's, an anal- it's an
2: analogy for the for the listener that's why I said the equivalent no, no, I, of.
1: Right, right. But it has nothing to do with that. In other words, the, the analogy doesn't work. It's like comparing a, a mushroom to an airline, you know, a, a, or a plane. I mean, what, where's the analogy? Um, you know, you're, you're trying to put in political bias. You're trying to make, you know, white supremacy. You're trying to put in all these other things to poison people's thinking rather than letting them think for themselves and evaluate what I, what I gave was evidence. What I gave was that what you ridicule as a, as a Bronze Age God is the God who made you and designed you. Uh, in such meticulous detail that science continues to, to be stunned uh, about the human being. And, and the further you dig into the cell and the more microscopic you get, something you can only see under the most high-powered microscope is like a, a city and a village, you know, with mechanisms going on. That's why the psalmist said we're fearfully and, and wonderfully made. It's quite extraordinary the way God designed us. So, so he knows quite best what's good for us, and that's why when we, when we follow his guidelines, it goes better for us. I have, I have no question whatsoever—not for a split second—that if you came to know him and lived by his guidelines, you, you'd be you'd be more fulfilled and joyful and at peace than, than you could even imagine. I grew, up in, the,
2: I grew up in the church. I, I grew up as a Christian. I was a Christian for most of my life, uh, and uh, not just a Christian, but a teacher, a leader in uh, three different denominations uh, of the Christian Church. So I can I can tell you uh, firsthand I've seen the result of uh, people trying to live out their Christian idea of marriage and sexuality and it has not turned out better than people who are not Christians. So it, it seems like a, a, an interesting idea to say that, Oh yeah, this is going to work out better for you. But in, in the real world, uh, what I see if in churches are people suffering from, uh, you know, the pains of divorce. I see out of wedlock, um, uh, births, you know, with elders, daughters, and I see, um, You know, pretty much I see homosexuality. They just keep it hush-hush. I see everything in the church that you think is bad sexuality as I see in the world in equal proportions. And so I don't buy um, the line that it's somehow better over there or that if you do it by, by, you know, quote-unquote God's way, then you're going to be happier. I have seen some of the most miserable people in christian marriages uh who have stayed married because they thought it was the right thing to do but that didn't produce a better life for them it just produced one less divorce statistic and frankly they would have been happier if they had gotten divorced so i don't i don't in fact see in the real world what you're describing
1: yeah I, yeah so so just to yeah just to push back and again I, I'm, I'm not in your shoes so i can't say whether you ever really knew the lord or whether you just were raised in a a legalistic Christian tradition. I I don't know that. I I wasn't in your shoes. But the first part of what you said is quite remarkable, Um, and I found it utterly contradictory. You're saying that that you know God's ways don't work because people broke God's laws in church and they suffered for it. It's like saying the speed limit doesn't work because in my community we have speed limits all the time and people break them and get in accidents. Yeah, they they get in accidents because they, they break them, of course. But this much I know. Uh, I, I can bring you to marriage after marriage and family after family. When It's not just a matter of living by a law. It's a matter of having a life-giving relationship with your heavenly father, and he's there to help. And, and marriages that have been healed and couples that have come back together. If you're actually telling me that multiple divorces, remarriages, and sleeping around out of wedlock is the way to satisfaction, and that works better, that's in better interest than monogamous committed marriages i would say that all statistics are against you and when you then look at the issue of children being raised we know the devastating effects of divorce on children we know the devastating effects of kids that are that are raised uh without a dad i mean this is you know massive sociological studies verify this simply to say god's ways are best and you know again i'm just wondering why why a, a man having sex with a woman he's not married to might get a sexually transmitted disease But if he does the same thing with his wife and she's also faithful, she won't get one. I'm just curious about that scientifically, how you might explain that.
2: I think that if you were really concerned about people getting sexually transmitted diseases, you would probably be more in favor of things like sex education and free condoms. But I don't I don't think that that's actually a concern. That, well, I, I that, asked a question. That feels, that feels more like a solid. talking point than a concern. Well, I'm just saying, if that was, if that was really what you cared about, that, w- that would be, I think, what you would be teaching. And I, abstinence is
1: what I teach. Uh, abstinence yeah. is definitely the, the best way for, for a kid. I, I don't want some 12 year old to know how to put a condom on and be having sex at 13. That's not in their best interest. Perfect. Definitely not. But, but anyway, so it, was that saying that you don't have an answer to my little question? Just, just
2: curious. I think that your question is not deserving of an answer.
1: <laughs> Got so. it, so you don't have one. All, all clear, <laughs> right. your polite way of saying you don't have an it, answer to you, you I, I, right. it. You are right. It is that.
2: it is my polite way of addressing it. But, uh, yes, yeah, so I th- I think it's a disingenuous question.
1: Got it, but you don't have an answer to it. All clear.
0: Okay. All right, Let, all right. so, so <laughs> let's fair it off again. Let, let's move on to the last topic for tonight. And and this is, um you know, cessationism versus continuism. And, I think David also wants to talk a bit about uh, spiritual warfare. And how I think it works.
2: goes hand in hand.
0: Uh, I if, think David, can, kind of can I
1: there. just, uh, forgive me for not knowing more about your background, but just sure. just real quick, just for context. So what kind of church were, were you raised in?
2: I was raised in a very conservative, very fundamentalist uh, Southern church. But I also um, was a part of other churches. So I didn't, I, I would say that I transcended it, uh, where I was raised and sampled, uh, a lot of different versions of Christianity. Uh, so I think that's part of my unique story. Uh, I am not just the product of, uh, of, of one thing.
1: Got it. I, I appreciate that. And, and again, I don't, I don't dispute your own story. I just, I, I I'm not in your shoes to live it out. But I, I fully believe that religion in itself can be very toxic and, and that Christian rules and regulations without relationship with God are, are going to be deadly. So um that's that's why I asked just for that reason. But thank you. Again, I'm not sure. questioning no, sincerity. No. History. I just I, I, I didn't
2: feel like you were, but I, I do think okay. that the, the hearer, the audience will hear, that's probably the second time I think that you've mentioned uh, a a a transcendent or a true relationship with God. And, you know, one would begin to wonder, what do you mean by that exactly? Uh, Who's the arbiter of that? Because I can assure you that uh, the skeptics uh, that I know, and those that I interact with on uh, various boards, uh, who have been Christians, I call them ex but we all have a different word for it. uh, We had as true a relationship uh, with, the, with our truest understanding of God as possible. And so it it does smacks a little bit of hubris to even hint at, oh, but yours wasn't a real relationship, or you weren't a real Christian. You, you weren't going there, were you?
1: No, I, I didn't know. At first, okay. I didn't know that was part of your background, or I would have phrased things differently uh, when, when I made the first statement in terms of if you had thus and such. So I I only knew you as a skeptic, not knowing your history. Um, Listen, I know people that, as far as I can tell, had a genuine relationship with the Lord and fell away. Um, I I take these things very seriously. They're very weighty to me. I know others that were raised in church and never had a real relationship with God and and got turned off by dead religion or hypocrisy in the church or an abusive leader or, or things like that, and that drove them away from God in general but it was really a bad experience in church. So, uh, But look, when I talk to somebody, I'm going to believe their story. In other words, I'm not going to determine reality based on that or my own beliefs, but if someone shares their story and tells me, hey, look, I, I got up in the morning and I couldn't wait to open my heart and, and and spend time with God. And I read the scriptures and they just came alive to me. And I, I just wanted to tell people about Jesus. And when I worshiped, I had such joy and God was so near to me. He was my father. And we were just talking to him. was as real as talking to somebody else. And then I, I questioned it over a period of time. I'm, I'm not going to doubt that person's story. I'll say, okay, if that was your experience, then you can relate to what I'm talking about. But you you deny it now or differ with it. But I, interesting. I take, I take in. it
2: the same I, – I, I am the same way, in fact, of, on the topic that we're about to get into, which is, um, you know, things things of spiritual gifts and things like that. I tend to take people at their word when they give me an experience. I don't take – I don't accept their interpretation of it, but I don't assume that they're lying about their experience.
1: Got it. I, I just wanted to throw this in that uh, my wife Nancy and I met in '74 when she, we were both 19, both Jewish, but her mom had been married four times. And when she was around eight, she said, you know, it would be wonderful if there was a God, it's it's a shame there isn't. And and she was really hardcore atheist when we met and really um, really looked down her nose at religious people, just thought they were weak and, and couldn't deal with reality and leaning on a, a crutch. And and then God came into her life and changed her and brought us together. But uh, she's helped me over the years to understand um, not just an agnostic mentality, but an atheist mentality and how they would see things because that was never my own background. And I might present something to her that I thought was a strong argument. She said, no, not to an atheist that would. would." So, you know, I, I do appreciate different perspectives and obviously we all have limitations on our own experience and understanding, which is why we, in the midst of our differences, we try to listen to each other.
0: Sure. Absolutely. Dale? Okay. okay. Um, yeah. Um, and I, I concur 100%. And yeah, thank you for, for taking some time to go over uh, David's personal story there, Mike. I appreciate you doing that. Um, yeah. So, so why don't I turn it over to you to give sort of the an introduction, a, a five-minute intro Um On this topic do spiritual gifts uh, continue continue today or did they did they cease with the coming in of the Bible there is no more need for it and you know what about spiritual warfare are demons and angels fighting and that sort of thing Uh, yeah give us your take on that yes so
1: I just as I believe that God exists I believe there is a spiritual realm my focus is on God not on demons or angels, but I do believe there is a a, a real spiritual realm. Uh, scripture speaks of it, and I have had some experiences that would be difficult to explain without the reality of that of that spiritual realm. Uh, even though human beings are ultimately responsible for choices they make, I do believe that there are demonic influences that that try to push us as well to uh, to do certain things. Um, I'm convinced based on scripture and experience that God continues to work miraculously in this world. So be it people that I know that had incurable illnesses, be it one of my best friends in the world whose wife died in India with with brain cancer and spinal cancer that had crippled her and after she was pronounced dead, was raised from the dead and got out of the the bed jumping and and standing and lived for several years after that, uh, be it cases like that uh be it the holy spirit speaking certain things and then those things coming to pass uh revealing things that no one could know um i have clear evidence of of scripture and clear evidence experientially for almost 48 years now of the reality of of god's existence and the reality of his working supernaturally in this world we still have suffering pain you can't just push a button and manufacture a miracle there's certainly uh, flaky stuff that that people will engage in in the name of God or in the name of the miraculous, but the testimony of Scripture is clear, and the evidence of God working in history. Uh, Craig Keener, one of the world's foremost New Testament scholars, has uh, a two-volume work about 1,200 pages, where he tackles the philosophical objections to miracles, and then looks at the biblical evidence, and then begins to document miracles. And he would look for evidence. He would look for medical verification, eyewitness verification, different things. And it's it's stunning to read the things that he has there. Randy Clark, in his book Eyewitness uh, to Miracles, uh, discusses his doctoral dissertation that, that he did where they they uh, analyzed people with metal implants in their bodies and what happened to them before and after prayer. So he talks about stuff that can be documented and cites other medical studies where where researchers with equipment uh, measured people seeing and hearing before prayer, people who were blind and deaf, and then measured it after and verified the miraculous. So uh, God is at work. Uh, he's doing amazing things. It is ongoing demonstration that Jesus rose from the dead and that God hears prayers, prayed in Jesus name. Again, uh, we will never have a hundred percent results in this world. Uh, we understand we're in a fallen world and that's why we pray for the lord's return to bring an end to suffering and pain but the testimony of scripture is clear my own experience verifies it and
0: the experience of millions of people around the world verify it and and just before david comes back uh, just so the audience knows you you used to be a cessationist didn't you you, you changed your mind if, I, if I, I,
1: I i tried i tried to be I, I tried for for a period of years uh i i um uh, I came to faith in a church that believed uh, all of these all of these things. and uh, and then I got skeptical when I, when I didn't see certain things happen, when I began to question certain things I saw in the Bible in terms of the miraculous. so i I, I tried to be a cessationist, but I couldn't because the testimony of scripture was too clear. and mm. and then and then undeniable experience as well. But for a period of, of five years, I, I really questioned things from 77 to 82, uh, read books that tried to argue for cessationism, but I, I couldn't. Uh, the, the testimony of Scripture was just too clear to me. And then, like I said, just seeing God intervene and, and do things, I mean, you get moved on to pray a particular time of day for a particular person in a particular situation out of the blue, only to find out that at that specific moment that they were going through this particular crisis. And. And cry out to god for help and you pray for them at that moment and a breakthrough comes You know, just things like that that can happen even on a regular basis are just so real and and seeing god change people's lives so real that i that i ultimately couldn't deny it but I, I tried i read the books i got the literature you know uh, so this was not from an atheistic viewpoint but just a different theological
0: viewpoint yeah yeah cool all right um, david I'll, I'll turn it over to you for the interaction portion on this
2: okay um I, I know I'm only probably going to get a couple of questions here, so I'm just trying to figure out the most important ones. Um, honestly, um, why not all the suffering? I mean, you said a couple of times uh, in your introduction there, uh, naturally, we can't expect all the suffering to be taken care of. But then, then why any? Uh, why not all? What is the limiting factor to God? dealing with all of the suffering and all of the prayer requests uh, of all the righteous people what what's what's limiting him from doing that
1: uh, number 1 i can't give a definitive answer in terms of speak for god I don't, I don't want to pretend that i've got some brilliant philosophical answer i'm going to give you that gives you a definite satisfactory answer so i just want to say right out of the gate my answer won't satisfy certain people okay and and i'm not i'm not surprised if it doesn't but Um, overall, the world is messed up because of human choices. Now, I'm not talking about a natural disaster. That's a fair question there. Or even, you know, why does this disease affect a baby? But so many of the problems that we have uh, are are self-inflicted. Wars that are fought are self-inflicted. Drunk car accidents are self-inflicted. Uh, a, a father abusing a child and then that child growing up with in a violent reactionary way these things are self-inflicted inflicted. and until the lord returns we're going to have freedom to make certain choices and for the most part god does not stop us from making those choices or or stop those choices from having negative effects on others otherwise nobody would be raped and nobody would be robbed and nobody would be murdered and, and on and on it goes So there's suffering that we bring about, but then as I understand scripture, the suffering in the world, including sickness and disease and and death is a result of human sin and rebellion, uh, and those things will not ultimately be remedied until Jesus returns. So the first and biggest thing is to to come into right relationship with God and have our sins forgiven.
2: I'm sorry, but you're saying that God does do all of these things sometimes. Yes. Death is a part of the fallen world, but he'll raise a dead person sometimes or you know, the consequences of someone else's suffering. He doesn't want to interfere with free will, and yet he does sometimes. And so it makes it sound very capricious. It sounds a lot like, and and uh, for, forgive me if this sounds more harsh than it seems, but it sounds like you're counting the hits and ignoring the misses uh, and giving God credit when something good happens and then giving sin credit when something good doesn't happen. How am I wrong about that?
1: Yeah, so you're wrong in that we dove in the water and we're drowning. That's, that's, that's our business. And the fact that some get rescued, thank God for some that get rescued. In other words, you, can't, you can't blame those that aren't rescued on the people that jumped into the water. So that's, that's why I don't accept your analogy. But uh, people, even people being raised from the dead in Jesus' ministry was very rare, and they're going to die again anyway. So we're ultimately all going to die. The big issue is relationship with God and resurrection of the dead. So the why is He ever. doing it?
2: Why is He why is He helping anyone then? I'm still I'm still not understanding <laughs> right, that right, philosophically.
1: Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Be- because He works through human beings. Very simple. He works through human beings, and and just like uh, it's a matter of us taking the gospel to people, it's a matter of us praying for people. It's a, ma- a matter of us being in faith that He works through human beings, and He works according to our faith and things like that. So uh, when we pray for people, we see certain results. When we don't pray for people, we don't see those results. So he's not working outside of us. He's working with us. Uh, This is our world. He created us and put us here and then said, hey, live your lives now. So this is our world, and, and he works with us and through us. So just like food relief, for example, here's a famine, but there's adequate food. Okay, we have to get it to those people. It's not that God... Gets it to those people. We get it to those people. So he works through us. It's not just he sits around and arbitrarily says, oh, "I think I'm going to touch that one, and I'm going to ignore that one." Who are we praying for? Who are we reaching, are we reaching out to? So, Who so are we extending? I'm uh, just gonna, to? I'm just
2: going to try one more time, and I and I want to make sure yeah. I understand your answer so that I don't miscategorize it. But you, you just said when we pray for people, we get a certain report, result. When we don't pray for people, we, don't, uh, we get a certain result. And I'm, I'm trying to understand here because it seems like there are millions of people who are praying uh, as biblically as one can understand it, it, the biblical requirements of prayer and don't get results. And I'm trying to understand why, what it is you're saying about why some prayers get results, why other prayers don't get results. Is this a spiritual war thing? Um, Is, is this a, you're always blaming the human for praying wrong thing? Uh, or, Or what's the difference between the person that gets results and the person that doesn't?
1: Right. So, so here's, here's the issue I have with what you're saying. You've got potentially 10 million different cases and want a uniform answer for all of them. In some cases, we're not really praying and crying out. In some cases, we're praying for God to work in someone's life when that person is making choices and God's, not, God's working in their heart, but he's not overriding their will. Uh, in, in other cases, it's a matter of he has a purpose in the midst of the suffering and pain that we grow through it and learn of him through it, And other times he has a purpose in being glorified with a miracle. It's not a cookie cutter answer. And ultimately what we're trying to do is wrap our little minds around something that's, that's far bigger than our minds can understand. But that being said, I want to say at the outset, I can't give a clear answer for every case because I'm not God. And my understanding is limited. That's why I said at the outset, it won't satisfy someone looking for a, a scientific argument. Like I could give in certain other things in this case, I say I can't explain why certain things happen certain ways and others don't, but I can explain a lot of it. And I also know that God redeems things through suffering so that many people grow, you know, the no pain, no gain situation. Many people grow in character. Many people grow in compassion. Many people grow in their effectiveness to reach others. One of my best friends in the world was, was raised as an untouchable and, and suffered horrifically growing up in India and then became a, a, a violent communist terrorist before he met with Jesus and, and he's transformed whole communities. What he's done to, to raise the standard of living and to help poor and orphans and handicapped and 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 educate people is mind-boggling, recognized by the government, but it's the fruit of Jesus saving someone who was an untouchable and suffered much, much and then turning that around in a redemptive way. But beyond that, yeah, what I'm saying is ultimately God knows, and of course, that's not going to satisfy you, which I understand. I've, I've got no problem. <laughs> I have zero problem with you saying... If I believe in the miraculous, why don't we see it more? I, I have zero problem with that being a strong objection to you. Uh, I will also ask you to consider the evidence of the miraculous and say, okay, how do I explain that?
2: Yeah, but you're just not giving me any consistent answer or reason to believe that um, the miraculous is taking place. But I, look, that's, that's oh, fine. No, no,
1: let, me just, let me just push back. I can't explain in every case why it's not taking place. But I'm challenging you to look at hardcore evidence that it is taking place and that you, you'd have to be you, you'd have to be so committed to not believe the only way that you could walk away saying that miracles are not happening is that you are committed to not believing in them.
2: I think that's a step too far. I, I think you alienate a lot of people when you say that they are simply not being honest if they if they look at the evidence and don't think that a miracle is taking place. I don't I don't think a lot of Christians would follow you there. Um And so uh, but but rather than but rather than rest on that, I'll I'll let that hang for the audience to digest. Audience, if you don't believe that some of these things that are called miracles are miracles, you're just lying scumbags. What's the next? Well, I'll put it like this. (laughs) I I
1: was I I, I mildly resent the fact that I, I seriously doubt you've read the books that i just referenced and are and, have, and I, have
2: i seriously doubt that i have to have read the books you no, reference no, no, in no, order no. to have enough experience in the world uh with miracle claims uh to to be able to say it's, that it's, i have studied it's, miracle it's, claims
0: have, yeah Jay, let michael let michael come back
1: uh, yeah i yeah. mean let me just say this okay and again i love the pushback and, and welcome it but just for my closing words. I find it completely disingenuous when I make a statement based on scientifically verified miracles that you have to be committed not to believe, to read it and dismiss it. You haven't read those. And then you say, I'm saying X, Y, Z about people as if I'm insulting. What you just did is took my words, which were meant in utter sincerity to the glory of God and to help genuine seekers, turned it into an insult. I gave it as an invitation. To me, it's really disingenuous. You're almost saying, you know, my listening audience really can't handle facts, so I'm going to have to keep throwing out these subtle insults and the, the Trump supporter stuff, these subtle insults to undermine the factual stuff you're presenting or just your own views that you're presenting to buttress my position. That's disingenuous. That sounds like someone that's just trying to prop something up as opposed to saying, hey, let's examine it. Let's examine it. Let's take a look at it. You, you believe there's this scientifically based evidence? Let's take a look at it and evaluate it. That to me is the right response. Anyway, just being candid with me, as you are
2: with me. Absolutely. So I have Aaron so Aaron. I have taken a look at miracles, and you are you are simply not in the same universe that I am in. If you think that you are able to say that I have not studied uh, miracles or that I do not uh, have the right to an opinion about uh, miracles based on my experiences and studies, since you don't know anything about them, but you're suggesting that. If I if I just look at your claims, if I if I just look at those sources, then I could be uh, given the the mantle of honest seeker. I honestly don't care if you think I am an honest seeker or not.
0: I'll, I'll just say that. So uh, on my end, I I actually I do agree with Michael L. Brown with Michael Brown about Craig Keener's books being a great resource. I I actually own them, but. Yeah, uh, David, on your end, uh, like I said, I plan to invite Craig Keener to come back on our show to discuss that that topic specifically. So, yeah, we, you can have a back and forth on that. Yeah, but, I'm, uh, I'm,
2: yeah. I, I would, I invite uh, the conversation on the topic. I, I, I don't invite the in situation, though that somehow if you haven't looked at those things, then you don't have a right to an opinion about miracles. Sure. So. Okay.
0: Yeah, and, and in, in
1: context, I stand behind every word that I said that when someone looks at the mass of evidence and scientifically confirmed, you would have to be committed to not believing to deny the miraculous. Yeah, so someone I, someone know, said that to me recently
2: mind. about the shroud as well. Uh, what, what you, so so
1: once, again, <laughs> once again, deflection.
2: Well, no, I'm just, I'm just, it, I'm, no, not be try be trying. Right, I'm, so, just, so, I'm saying I've so had that exact it. same conversation this week. And the subject wasn't about miracles so much. It was about the Shroud. If you look at the Shroud honestly and you don't agree, then you are, you know, you know you're your you're not being honest.
1: One person, made, well, well, the Shroud's an interesting topic, by the way, but just because one person made one su- statement about a subject is unrelated to the statement that I made. So I just want to, as i got to run now, yeah. uh, I, I just want to repeat, look at the scientific evidence of the miracles And to to your listening audience, for yourselves as thinkers, all right, because you're not beholden to Dave or me or anybody. You're you're an independent human being in that respect. Mm -hmm. Look at the scientific evidence of miracles performed in Jesus' name, scientifically verified, documented, and come to a rational conclusion about the source of it. That's my appeal.
0: Perfect. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I just want to say thank you to both sides, giving honest yet frank uh, feedback on our opinions. We, we disagree. That's fine. That's that's why we're here to, to discuss these important issues. So, yeah, I just want to say thank you so much again, um, Mike, Mike, for coming on the show. It, it meant a lot to me. As I said, you um, were influential in my coming to faith with your, your books, uh, specifically answering Jewish objections to Jesus. And yeah, uh, thank you for being on.
1: I appreciate it, and thanks for having me. And Dave, thank you so much for the pushback. I, I love every minute of it. Thank you. Oh, sure. It's uh,
2: <laughs> it's it's I, only a fraction know. of what the audience would have wanted to hear, but I need to I need to represent what uh, the, the types of questions that they would have and uh, get, yeah. get 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 the things that you would would respond to. <laughs> All right.
1: Well, I, I I wish you the richest of, of God's blessing, man. Th- thanks for having me on, guys. I appreciate it.
0: All right, have a great day, Mike.
1: Bye bye.